thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So then welcome to this uh, study on the book of Genesis. We are now in chapter 11. But before I get in there, I wanted to attract your attention to one of the great treasures of the Catholic Church, St. John Climacus. Uh, probably not uh, many of you may have heard of him. His feast day is actually March 30th, this last Monday. He is a doctor of the church, and he's celebrated in the Latin uh, church as well as in the Eastern churches and the Orthodox church on March 30th. Uh, at the age of 30, he, had, he felt a calling to become a hermit, and he lived uh, for about 25 or 30 years as a hermit, and then asked, was asked to be effectively a bishop, I mean, not a bishop, a, uh, an abbot of a monastery, which he did diligently, and then a, uh, another abbot asked him to write on acquiring virtues, and he wrote a book which really deals with, the, where he uses, the, it's called The Ladder, and it he uses the ladder of Jacob, which is a, a vision that uh, Jacob had, and we're going to get to it, as a means to explain how one goes about acquiring virtues. And he speaks about the lower, la- lower rings of the ladder as being those rings where you detach yourself from vices, and the higher ladders, the ones where you acquire virtues. And there are many icons where you see Christians climbing the ladder with angels helping them on one hand, and demons shooting arrows at them. And you see St. John Climacus and, uh, and, the, and the monks sort of at the beginning of the ladder wanting to climb. Uh, very beautiful reflection in the Orthodox churches. They use that particular reflection throughout their Lent. And I thought I would mention that to you um, because it, it is one of the um, gifts that we have within the Catholic Church. And um, with that, um, let us then start reading chapter 11. Actually, right before we do that, let's recall what we've covered in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we went through the book of, or the tables of generations, and we uh, mainly covered the generations of Ham and Japheth, not touching Shem. And the reason is because the generation of Shem is repeated in this chapter, and hopefully we'll get to it. If we don't, I, I do have these two... Um, these two tables represented in diagrams, which will be shortly up on the web. As soon as the last lecture uh, study and this study will be on the web, you will also have access to those, which you can take and look at. Uh, They're not necessarily the sort of things that you're you're going to memorize, but they're going to be good for you to keep uh, close by when you're reading Scripture and you come upon those names. If you track them back up the genealogies, you can relate them there for covenantly, are they on, the, on which side they are, and then you'll understand better the moral temperament of that particular passage you're reading. 
as we will see later when uh, Abraham went down to Egypt, Egypt is a son of Canaan. And so now you're dealing, you know who he's dealing with from a covenantal point of view. And you'll understand what happens to the Pharaoh a lot better because of that. Without it, it really doesn't make sense. So the reason why these genealogies are given is precisely because they are so important to the covenant and to understand how God's moral action um, changes depending on who belongs to which side of the family and the, the cursed side or the blessed side or the sort of the neutral side, the side that is, kind of, that is blessed by Shem, that is the side of Japheth. Keep that in mind as we now start chapter 11. In chapter 11, we interrupt this genealogical uh, description to talk about an event that you are all very familiar with, or at least you're familiar with its principal point, and that is the Tower of Babel, uh, or Babel. I, sus I suspect all of you have heard of the Tower of Babel, right? Okay, so we're going to take a, a closer look at the Tower of Babel and understand exactly what is the point that the author wishes to make so that we can properly understand uh, its content. Now, the whole earth had one language and few words. And as men migrated <coughs> from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with, with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And that's verses 1 through 9, and verse 10 begins, These are the descendants of Shem which is apparently a, a reconnect with the end of chapter 10. But that is inserted in the middle for a very specific reason. Let's understand why this is so. Uh, first, we need to uh, point out that um, some, some incongruities in the text, or at least apparent incongruities. So let's, let's do that. Uh, you notice that when they w purposed to build the tower, the very first thing they said was, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, which is very strange. You usually don't start building something by talking about the smallest building block. Uh, for instance, you're planning on building a house, and before you lay out the plans and the architecture and all that is required, you say to yourselves, let's make some bricks. And we're not talking about a, a you know, we're not talking about doghouse here. We're talking about a tower that is supposed to reach, and we're talking about bricks right away. So obviously this is important, but our, its importance for us is lost. We're going to have to recover that. The other incongruity here is the, re, the way the Lord reacts. It looks like these guys got together and are doing something good. I mean, act, actually, we always talk about you know, being united and doing something together, speaking the same language and pro communicating properly. And, all, and they were doing all these things. They were doing a whole bunch of really good things. And the Lord comes across as if he's the one who's about to do something really bad. Because he says, look at those guys. 
Um, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. Well, this is not bad, right? We are one in the Lord. I mean, we sing that, don't we? Well, okay, they're one people. They speak one language. Hmm? And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What's that? Well, what's wrong with that? And so God comes down and completely interrupts the whole thing, right? By purposely confusing them and giving them different languages when they were actually speaking one language. So why is that? So, in order to properly understand what's going on, let's take a closer look at this chapter. The first thing I will tell you is that like the Table of Nations, this account has no parallel in any of the other ancient texts that we know of. You will not find an account of the Tower of Babel anywhere else. I mentioned already to you that you do find an account of the flood in Mesopotamian texts, whether Akkadian, Babylonian, or Assyrian, or even in the Greek mythologies, you'll also find accounts of the flood. No such account will be found in the Tower of Babel. It doesn't exist. It exists only in Scripture. It's very particular to Scripture. So therefore, that uh, ha- leads us to understand that there is something in this text that is very, very specific, um, and that is, it's saying something about the civilization during which the author lived that is important. And you will see that actually it applies really well to our own time. The second thing I'll tell you is that it does display an intimate acquaintance of Babylonian, with Babylonian construction techniques. Um, and a familiarity with some characteristic formulas of cuneiform royal building inscriptions. In other words, that the, 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 the human author knew about the technology of the time which was the brick. Now, we don't think much of a brick today. It's, uh, you know, it's so common when you think about it. But um, you, you need to realize that the brick is actually a very important invention for Mesopotamian cultures. Before I go any further, I think a little bit of geography is required. Um, so I'm going to describe it to you this way. If you can think of the Mediterranean Sea as a sort of a narrow rectangle, right? On the western edge of that rectangle, you basically have Portugal on the, on the, on the north, right? And um, Tunisia on the east, on the south, sorry, right? So Portugal and Tunisia. And this is where you have the, you know, the uh, uh, Gibraltar, the Strait of Gibraltar, right? Okay, now, right across, on the eastern side of that rectangle, you basically have a a sliver of Syria, Lebanon, and then a sliver of Israel. So far, so good? Okay. Turkey is to the northeast of that line. All right. Now, in Turkey, you have two rivers that are very, very important that flow from the uh, um, mountains of Turkey. You have the Euphrates, which flows sort of from the, from the uh, uh, mountains of Turkey down and then kind of cuts a little bit through Syria and then goes out into Iraq. And, and then uh, the delta of that river is in the Persian Gulf. Right? And then on the northern side, you have the Tigris, another big river that also flows 
down and then into the Persian Gulf. That area between the two rivers is called the area between the two rivers. It's called Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means the area between the two rivers. Okay? The southern part of it is a plain called Shinar. All right? In that plain, there are very few rocks, but lots and lots and lots of dirt. If you're going to try and build something, you're not going to count on rocks because you're going to have to carry it from... from further away. Now in Canaan, so Phoenicia and, and so Lebanon and Israel, lots and lots of rocks, lots of flint stones. That's what you used to build with. So for the author, remember, who has been deported from Jerusalem out to Babylon, that's an important observation that they make bricks because those guys had to use something else to build. The only thing they, the only thing they had was dirt. Now building with dirt, not going to get you very far. But if you turn dirt into mud and then let the mud dry and cut it you could use that as a building block however if you take that same block and then bake it into kiln ovens you get a much sturdier construct called the brick Okay? And that's what they invented. In fact, the invention of the brick is so important to Mesopotamian culture that there was a whole religious ceremony around the invention of the brick. Okay? And the colloquialism is, let us take some bricks, is a colloquialism used to indicate big projects. Because you're using the, you're using the top technology to do what you have to do. All right? And then obviously what they did is that once they built stuff with, with, um, with brick, they protected it with bitumen. What is bitumen? Tar. Okay? And there's lots of it there. I suppose it doesn't come in as a surprise to anybody. Because tar is related to what? Oil. Lots of oil over there. Right? So once you do that, you have essentially a building that is very well insulated and well protected. And that's the technology that they use to to build. And that's why actually, interestingly enough, you don't have much, uh, you don't find many uh, intact or completed ruins in these areas of these ancient buildings because they used brick, which is dirt. Right? But whatever, if you use rocks, flintstones, those things will stand the time much, much better. Okay. Now, the key expression that has been repeated here five times in those nine verses read to you is all the earth. All the earth. What is the intention here? What's the, what, what is the author's uh, um, intention? The author's intention is to let us know that um, everybody seems to have fallen one more time into the same old sin. Everybody is doing the same thing. Let's, let's look at it this way. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God walked with them, and God gave them everything except that one tree. And then they messed it up. What did God do? He came back and then helped them up. So they sort of started again, right? They started again. Now, before I go on, I want you to l- look at, this, at these events 
through a Jewish prism, not a Christian prism. There's a fundamental difference between the two. Within the Jewish prism, things look cyclical. Look like the cycle is just repeating. You do understand that for the Jews, today even, modern Judaism does not have the concept of original sin. You, you realize that. Neither do many Protestant churches. They don't have a concept of original sin. It doesn't exist. All right? We tend to project many of our beliefs on others thinking we shared with them, but we really don't. They, don't. they don't believe in this original sin business. To them, okay, Adam and Eve fell, fine. God came and helped them. But guess what? The cycle repeated. Then Cain blew it, and then God came and helped him, and the whole Canaan civilization started. But then everybody, including the guys on the other side, messed up, and God had to come in a clean, clean house, and then start again with Noah. Now that he started again with Noah, guess what? The cycle repeats. You see the cyclical nature? This cyclical nature is very important for us to understand because this is the, the, the way the world today conceives of events. You heard the expression, what comes around goes around, right? Or, you know, we're repeating things over and over, right? The cycle of time, all that. That cyclical nature of things is fundamentally um, contradictory to a Christian belief. Within the Christian understanding of the world, the world is not cyclical. The world is linear. Time advances, moving forward. And what is the fundamental difference, therefore, between a Christian view and a non-Christian view? It is one word, and it's providence. Christians believe that the world is guided by providence to its appointed end, such that everything that happens, every single event, whether a small, whether small or great, everything that happens tends to the greater good, tends to glorify God. And therefore, from a Christian perspective, there is never a tragedy. What is a tragedy by definition? Do you know what the tra- definition of tragedy is? One sentence. Do you know what that is? Yes. That's not it. Hmm, is not it. Yes. Something very bad or sad. Something very bad or sad. Not, not quite. You, you, you've hit on so, some elements, but that's not what a tragedy is. Yes. Okay, that's half of it. But there's the other half, which is very important, and the two together make up a tragedy. In a classical sense, a tragedy is a well-meant intention that produces opposite effects. So, a perfect example of a tragedy is the play um, um, on Caesar. Right? Brutus, Caesar's son, agreed to kill his father in order to restore the republic. The intention was well meant. The net result is that he helped foster a greater tyranny. And that's a tragedy. Romeo and Juliet. Right? Shakespeare wrote tragedies on purpose because he used them as a very good um, didactic tool to talk about death and the value of uh, life, etc., etc. The Greeks did the same thing. Those are moral plays, right? There is a morality built into the play. But in a Christian view of the world, there is no such thing as a tragedy. Everything that happens 
tends to the greater good. What is the greater good? It is not what benefits me. It is that which gives glory to God. Okay, this is the thing that we keep on forgetting constantly. We don't exist here to make ourselves happy. That's the problem we run into. We think we're here to make ourselves happy. And most of you kids' problems and frustrations come from that one fundamental mistaken belief. That you exist to make yourself happy. And as long as you focus on that, you're going to be unhappy. As long as you think that you exist to make yourself happy, you're going to be unhappy. Because God will frustrate your desires because He doesn't want you to go to hell. We exist to give glory to God. We have a problem with that. Why? Because original sin. We rebel. Our nature rebels. I shall know what is good and evil. I don't want God to tell me. Because this is equivalent. Saying that we exist to give glory to God is the same as saying we don't make good and evil. Those statements are absolutely equivalent. And when we focus on making ourselves happy, we're telling God, no, 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 no. I exist to make myself happy. Which means, existence is for me. And God says, no, you're the creature, you're the pot, and the pot doesn't talk like this to his maker. You exist for me. I made you. That's the fundamental problem we run into. And if you look at all our theology, you know, what we call... Let go. Let God be in charge. God is the one in charge. You're not in charge. All of these expressions, right? All the way up to holy indifference. All of these tend to the same thing. Our existence is for God. And if you read St. Paul, it's all over, all over his letters. For the greater glory of God. For the greater... Why? Because we exist for God's glory. It just so happens that our God is good, and therefore giving Him glory... Will make, us, will make us supremely happy. But we don't know that. We have to discover it. That's providence. Hence, somebody who lives in the providence of God will never be frazzled by the events of the time he lives in. He will never fall into this mistaken belief that it's us versus, it's us versus I mean, them versus us. All these people doing you know, all this abortion thing and how horrible they are, and then we fall into this mistaken belief we're here to judge them. And we, we speak, we, you know, um, we lay aspersion on them, we use disparaging remarks, and we get ourselves into this political battle, and we are actually working for ourselves. Jesus did none of that. Right? He did none of that. He didn't, you know, critique the political system of the Romans. He went after the religious leaders who were blocking people going to heaven, who were supposed to, and they were not. But the rich man came to him and went away because he wanted to make himself happy. And Jesus didn't say to him, ah, look, no. At the end of the day, all of us are doing God's will. You realize that? We are all doing God's will. And the only question that matters is, will I benefit from it or not? That's it. Because there are many who will be doing God's will and not benefiting from it. You will be benefiting from their work. That's the only question that really matters. Because everything else is, is tending towards its appointed end, which is giving glory to God. We won the battle. It's, uh, it's done. It's over. Now, we have to win ourselves. That's the fundamental thing. So, you've got to understand that if you look at this text now, as it happens again, all the earth, everybody got together, banded together, and started building this tower. Why is that a problem? Everybody bend, gets together and builds a tower. What is the, fun, what is the first problem? Yes. 
trying to make themselves God. Yes, but even before that, before trying to make themselves God, there is a more, if you want, basic problem. Yes. They did it so everyone could be happy. Yes, but there is even more basic problem than that. Yes. They did it to honor yourself. Absolutely. If you have statements along those lines, you're right. But that's what I'm looking for. Patrick? They ignored God. Okay, how did they ignore God? You're on the right track. But how? That's what I'm interested in. How? They ignored the covenant. The whole family of Canaan was cursed. What are, what are the people, of, you know, what are the kids of Shem doing with the pal- all the earth. This should trip you right away. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. It doesn't matter what they were doing. Baking a cake, playing football, ping pong. It doesn't matter. I mean, right there you know you're in trouble. All the earth, you're in trouble. How did God, when did God provoke the flood? When the sons of God went after the daughters of women. What does that mean? They crossed that line. Right? The sons of who? Let's see if you remember. It wasn't Shem, no. Yes? The third son of Adam and Eve. Who was that? Seth, thank you. Seth. When the sons of Seth went after the daughters of Cain, that's when God said, it's over. They crossed that line. As soon as you cross the covenantal line, what are you doing? You are basically completely masquerading or, or masking the truth. You're saying God's will and God's covenant doesn't matter. I can go and do whatever I want. When you do that, nobody can go to heaven anymore. You completely block the road because you essentially are selling a lie. So when all the earth gets together and starts working as one and doing wonderful things at one, completely ignoring God's covenant, what does that mean? Everybody's damned. So God has to put an end to this. You understand now the dynamics of this? Without the covenant, it makes absolutely no sense. It's the covenant that gives its meaning to this text. Okay? So that's the first problem. That's the first problem. The second is that they want to build this tower. And let's talk more about the tower, and I'll tell you what the problem with the tower is. But we need to understand what that tower is. So, first of all, everybody spoke the same language. Now, belief in a common language, belief in a common language seems to have been current in ancient Sumer. So, Sumer, Shinar, equivalent. Shinar is Sumer. Sumer is Shinar. The, the south-southwest uh, portion of Mesopotamia, closer to the um, Persian Gulf, is, is Shinar and it's Sumer, same area. So within that area, you will find myths, for instance, uh, the one on en- Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata that relates that the speech of mankind was confounded as a result of strife and jealousy between two gods. So the text is, this, the, 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 the text of scripture is going after, there's two things that it want to refute. The first one is this whole business of the gods. So it's, it's a constant polemic that is pursuing with the culture of its time that says, the reason why the languages were confounded was because of the gods. No, it wasn't. There's only one God, and it was because of men. Men was responsible. It happened because of the way men acted. 
Okay? What is the fundamental problem with the belief in the gods? Other than the fact that you're essentially believing in the wrong, in, in the false god. But what is the, wh- why would you want to do that? Yes? Right, but you're absolutely true. The gods are a reflection of themselves. Right. But what is the consequence when you say it's the gods who did it? Making yourself blameless. Exactly. Hey, what can we do? Eh, it's the gods. Right? Today, hey, what can we do? It's luck. It's your luck. Do you, by, by, by the way, let me talk, let me, I talked about providence, right? What is the opposite of providence? Luck. It's luck. So, you, did, did, you, did you know that when you wish somebody good luck, it's actually a form of a curse? Have you ever realized that? Because let me explain to you what we, what, what we mean when we say good luck. We mean this. Out there, there's these forces of chaos. Where bad things happen, and good things happen. And I really, what I really wish for you is that, of all these forces that we cannot control, you, you, you just happen to fall... Right when a good thing is happening. That's what we mean when we say good luck. So what are we negating? We're negating God's providence. We're negating everything works for the greater glory of God. We're negating effectively the cross of Christ. Because when He died on the cross, He became Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He became the one who is the Lord of all human affairs. And there isn't one hair that fall off your head that He has not accounted for. Not one. Which means that every time your mother cuts your hair, he had accounted for that cutting before the foundation of the time. He thought about that. Do you realize how personal he is with your hair? Imagine everything else. So what does it mean when we say good luck? You never wish somebody good luck. Right? What you wish someone is what? God's blessings be on you. Now you're speaking like a Christian. May God bless you. But, but no. We're not going to say that. Oh no. You imagine saying that in public? We go back to our little syndrome here. Oh, I'm Catholic. Am I taking too much space? I'm sorry. Sorry. You see how there is this compenetration of culture and religion? And you know that the... the, the Catholicism is winning when the culture is becoming Catholic. And you know the Catholicism is receding when Catholicism is becoming more like the culture. All right? So be mindful of the language you use and never use this business of good luck. All right? Or break a leg. I love this one. Break a leg. Anyhow. I told you about making the break, so we're not going to go there. Now let's talk about the tower. In order to understand this tower, we need to talk about something very specific to Mesopotamia called a ziggurat, or in Akkadian, a ziggurratu. A ziggurat was to Mesopotamia what the pyramids were to Egypt. There were lofty, massive, solid brick, multi-stage multi, um, uh, temple towers. All right, so the way you build one of those, you essentially build a terrace, a, ter- a terrace, which is a, in a trapezoid fashion, meaning the walls are leaning inward, inwardly. So if you're standing up, you're basically maybe you know six feet in from where you started. Hmm? 
And then you start all over again. You use that as your base, and you build another one of those, and another one of these, and you keep on going, you know, maybe six, seven levels up. And on top, you basically put a temple. All right? You put a temple. That's a ziggurat. And you would typically have a staircase that would go straight up. Straight up, all the way up from the, the ground, all the way up to the temple. Usually in one direct shot. Right? And um, these buildings were very common in the area. There were, we know of at least 16 of those. Um, for instance, in the city of Nippur, uh, Nippur had one, Ashur had one, Larsa had one, and obviously Babylon had one. The reason why you build those things, first of all, what, what is a zikurat? It comes from the Akkadian word, word zakaru, Z-A-Q-A-R-U, zakaru, which means build high. Translation, it's a skyscraper. All right? Uh, it's a skyscraper. So, for instance, the, the uh, Empire State Building is built, is uh, effectively built along those lines, but the 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 um, the platforms are narrower. But you, if you look at the Empire State Building, you see it sort of moving up this way, right? So it's the same principle. It's essentially a skyscraper. That's what they build. Those are the skyscrapers of Mesopotamia, and there were at least three thousand. Uh, I mean, at least 5,000 years ago, that's when they built those things. So it was effectively an, an architectural feat for them to be able to build this using bricks. Right? It took, it took some, some work to do. What does it symbolize? Why did they want to build this? It symbolizes a mountain. It represents a mountain. Mountains are always sacred, or sacred mountains plays really, uh, play a really important role in ancient civilization. Why? Very simple. The feet of the mountain are on the ground where we are, and typically, high mountains are way up in the clouds, the, abo the abode of the gods. Therefore, the mountain is this vertical axis where heaven meets earth. And many ancient civilizations believed that the gods lived up on the mountains. So, for instance, the mo most famous of those are, it is in Greece, Mount Olympus, which is an actual mountain. And the Greeks thought that the gods lived up there. Okay? So, the mountain is, has, has the, these two characteristics to it. The first one is that it has this vertical axis, as I just told you. And the other one is concentric. The mountain becomes the center of the earth, or as they used to say, the navel of the earth. Right? It's, the, it's where earth takes its full meaning. If you keep these two... Um, concepts in mind, you are now in much better shape to understand what Jesus meant when he said, if you have the faith as smart, if you have a faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, throw itself in the sea, and it will do so. Jesus never said, you can say to a mountain. He said, this mountain. He had in mind a very particular mountain. Okay. Unfortunately, with our tendency to look at everything scientifically, we might be thinking, hmm, maybe I should try and take Mount Everest and throw it in the sea. Well, that's be, I mean, that would be really interesting if you were to try and do something like this. You might end up in a place where lots of people walk around with white suits 
and there's lots of screams going around you. But beside the point, why did Jesus, what did Jesus mean when he said this mountain? Right? Here's what he meant. Remember, what's on top of that zikurat? What did I tell you that was on top of that? Yes, a temple. So in the Jewish imagery, the, temp, the mountain went away. And what became the mountain? The temple. The temple is the mountain. Read the Psalms, going up to the mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion, Mount all over the place, right? Mount. So, the temple is the mountain. Now, why is that important? Because what Jesus said was, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and you say to this mountain, which mountain? Temple. The temple of Jerusalem. To move and be thrown into the sea. What is the sea? What does the sea represent? The Gentiles. So what is he saying? If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can take that temple and put it in the midst of the Gentiles. And the result would be that the Gentiles will be converted. That's what he meant. But we're thinking, well, you know, know, a pile of dirt... You know, bring the tractors, let's see what we can do. We missed the point because, because we read it literalistically. I made up that word to, the, to distinguish between that and the literal meaning that is charged with imagery and history and background, which we have completely missed. We only think, oh yeah, it's a physical thing. Oh, of course, you have mountain, you know, mustard seed. Whoa, that's really powerful. Right? And we put the emphasis on us. If we have a faith as small as a mustard No, what he means is the reason why I'm telling you faith as small as a mustard seed, it's not because of you and your faith. It's because of me. Because I can move this mountain into the... That's what I can do. All you need is a little bit of faith in me. I'll take care of the rest for you. And we think, of course it's easy. Yeah, sure, we're going to have a little bit of faith in him. But let me ask you now. You might be having challenges at school. You may be having challenges with your children. You may be facing an unknown future. Your job may be at risk. You may be having issues at home. Do you have a faith as small as a mustard seed? Do you really believe He will be there and His providence is going to take care of all of this? Or have you brought the tractor home to deal with the problem yourself? And he's very realistic when he said faith as small as a mustard seed because he knows what we can really do. We can't do much more than that. That's what he meant. All right. So now they wanted to essentially build uh, this thing. Oh, by the way, uh, I told you about these different zikurats. Here are the names that were inscribed on these zikurats, on these um, temples. In Nippur, it was called the House of the Mountain. In Ashur, the House of the Mountain and the Universe. In Larsa, the house of the link between the heaven and the earth. And then in Babylon, and that's presumably what he has in mind, what he's seeing when he's writing this text, is the famous, one of the greatest uh, zikurat ever built, and it was called Itemen Anki. Itemen Anki. And that means the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. The house of the foundation of heaven and earth. Right? And if you see this expression, right... So, essentially, you know, when we get to the, to the vision that Jacob had of this ladder, 
linking between between earth and heaven, there is a backdrop to it. There's an image behind that. That's very important. And what is this ladder? It is the realization of what the Babylonians were longing for. The longing wasn't wrong. The realization was wrong. What is the realization? The realization is the Mass. Because what is the Mass? The Mass is precisely heaven on earth. I mean, physically, literally, it is heaven on earth. Because God comes da- come down from heaven and the whole divine court come down from heaven and meets us on the sanctuary. And that's where I get all frazzled up when I see all these people going up and down the sanctuary as if it's just any other place. Because the fundamental problem with this is that it is confusing the lady in understanding what is going on in the sanctuary. Nobody should be in the sanctuary but the priest and those who are serving with him at all times. No one should be coming up and, or down and they do it all the time. And unfortunately, it does not help teach people about the Mass and the Holy Mountain of God. That's why you have to have steps, because we are on the ground. This is the Holy Mountain of God. And yeah, you should have had rails, and you should have made the altar almost, inex- I mean, not the altar, the tabernacle, inaccessible to help people understand God is coming down from heaven. This is the Holy Mountain. We're meeting Him. And all of that is completely lost with everybody going up and down as if it's a souk and we're selling chicken. Alright, I'm done with my uh, diatribe and I try to control myself. But I get really upset when I see this. Now, to make a name, to make a name uh, for ourselves. Uh, oh, by the way, with, with its stop in the sky, that's a cliche. It's a Mesopotamian cliche. It means really, really high. Alright? So that's what they meant when they said that. But there is also an underlying meaning behind it, which I'll get to, you in, get to it in a minute. Now, to make a name for ourselves, name here probably connotes monument. Let me ask you this question. What is Ronald Reagan today? Uh, no. What is Ronald Reagan today? Thank you. An aircraft carrier. Ronald Reagan made a name for himself. He's become a monument. Right? What is Mozart today? It's a, it's a chocolate puff called Mozart. I won't say that Mozart made a name for himself, but that's, there's a Mozart thing. It's a candy. But the intent is to make a name for yourself, you become a monument. That's what they did. Ronald Reagan made a name for himself and so many other people. That's what they meant by let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build something that will glorify us. All right? So that's the second sin. Not only do they cross the line with the, with the covenant, but they also are building something to glorify themselves. Okay? And we all tend to build things to glorify ourselves. I'll give you a simple example. Um, go home and look at all the things you have and look at the one thing you prize most. The one thing that is really important to you. I'm talking about objects here. And especially to you kids. Might be a computer game, might be a computer, maybe a doll, maybe a dress, maybe, I don't know, a brush. Whatever the case may be. Those are the things that allow us to make a name for ourselves. Because those are the things that we value over and above everything else, even our siblings. Can I use this? No! We turn into a tyrant in an instant. How dare you get close to my, I don't know, apple, banana, or whatever the case may be. This is mine. You cannot touch it. All right. So don't think of it as all these, you know, Mesopotamians. How crazy they were. No, no, no. We can join in the club also very often. We don't even see it. 
Now, they are making a name for themselves so that they may not be scattered. They want it to be all together. Now, we think it's a good thing. So this is, let me read to you the text again. This is why they're making a name for themselves. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Let's make a name so we are not scattered abroad. Meaning, let's build a city, and when we make a name for ourselves, we become glorious, we stick together, right? And we are now a strong people. We don't want to be scattered. What is the problem with that? What was God's command to Noah? Yeah. Okay, go forth, fill the earth. Now that's the command. Now we think, oh, how beautiful. Go forth, fill the earth. Let me explain to you how this should have happened back then. 3,000 years ago, when, this guy, when, when the author is writing, right? Your, your, um, your Camry of the day is a donkey. Camels haven't yet been domesticated. Right? Now the standard ca- donkey model all right, is manual. All right? No air conditioning. Really poor suspension. And don't expect the donkey to follow your directions. It's, it has its own GPS and will go whatever it wants. All right, no, get, go and get scattered with donkeys all over the place. See how fun that is. That was not a particularly enjoyable experience from their point of view. Crossing the desert with donkeys is not exactly a cruise. Do you understand? So, they decided, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. We know better. We know what is best for us. We'll make ourselves comfortable. Surely God can't object for us to be comfortable. Now contrast this with St. Joseph. An angel comes to him in a dream. Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. Okay. He is in Nazareth, up north. It's the middle of the night. And he's got what? One donkey. And he's going down to Egypt. All by himself. Doesn't speak the language. You know how big Egypt is? The angel didn't say, go to Alexandria or go to Cairo. Go to Egypt. Okay, Let an angel come to one of you tonight and say, get up, take all your family and go to Canada. (laughs) On a donkey. (laughs) On a donkey. And stay there until I tell you. And what did St. Joseph do? Immediately he got up. And did as the angel told him. That is the glory of St. Joseph. And it's incredible. Incredible what he did. How many of us can do that? I'll tell you right away. Um, son, go pick up your room. All you kids respond. right? All you boys respond immediately. Right away, mom. And you drop what you're doing. Let's say you're playing a computer game. You drop it instantly. You get up. And you go fix your room perfectly. So that when your mother comes in to check it out, she's absolutely odd. That's what happens in all our homes, right? Mm. 
Yes, daughter, what you're wearing is not modest. You should change it. And obviously, all our daughters answer immediately, yes, father. And they go up and they change and they put modest clothes and they come down. And it's, ta-da! Right. There's no screaming, no crying, no accusations of how strict you are. And no, never. He got up and did exactly as the angel told him. And you think you had an excuse? He could have said, wait a minute. I've got the Son of God here. Who are you to talk to me? Hey. I have the Mother of God. And that's it. I mean, the top of the top is right here with me. And you're telling me I have to go to Egypt? I don't have to do that. I just ask the Mother of God to pray and I'll have 100,000 angels protecting me. I'll stay right here. I'm very comfortable. <laughs> the difference is that he had power. But he preferred obedience over power. Meditate on that. St. Joseph wasn't hopeless or helpless. He had power at hand. And he preferred obedience over power. So, now the question is, uh, so obviously they don't want to go be scattered and fill the earth and all that, right? No, no, no. Let's get ourselves busy with some technology. Right? Let's create some technology to prevent people from having children. Let's create some technology from preventing old people to suffer and save themselves from hell or purgatory. No, no, no. Let's make sure we kill them easily so you can go to hell. The point that the author is making is that men is really good at technology. It's again an attack against this notion that the gods gave us whatever they gave us. But he's also making another point. So he's avoiding two mistakes. One is to put everything on the hands of the, 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 the gods. Oh, the gods are there. Oh, what can we do? Poor me. Sorry. Right? The other one is, oh, everything men do is terrible, horrible. You know, go into this existential crisis where everything we do is terrible. We're killing all the rabbits, all the trees. You know, there's nothing for you. Right? The world is dying because of us. Both of these point to civilization of death. Both of them. The middle point is the radical one. That's why Catholicism is the religion of the middle. Why? Because if you have a sphere, and you have pressure coming at the sphere, where is the point in the sphere that feels the greatest pressure? The center. So if you're, going in the religion, uh, the, 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 if you're walking in the middle, you're actually holding on all those pressure points coming at you, and you're keeping them together. And most of the time in Catholicism, it isn't either or, it is both. We have to keep both. So we're not just predestined. Yes, there is predestination. Absolutely. But Calvinism is the religion of pure predestination. Right? God, when He created you, He put a stamp on your soul. Heaven or hell. And there's nothing you can do in the world to change that. But we, we don't just have free will. Right? Which is sort of a libertarian attitude. We can do whatever we want. No, it's both. Predestination and free will. How do they work together? We still don't know. But we, we, we hold both. And so it goes. So, they didn't want to do that, but they should have. Now, why did they want to build the tower? What is the fundamental reason that pushed them to build this tower? And St. Augustine tells us the reason why they wanted to build the tower is because in case there would be a second flood, they would survive. That's why they wanted the tower to be so high. So that the flood would not cover it. It's effectively... A, 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 um, a demonstration of disbelief in God's 
will and providence and His promise that He will not cause a second flood. Alright? So now you understand why God comes down and confuses them by multiplying the languages. It is His mercy. Because if they keep on doing what they're doing, they're doomed. But by breaking the, the, the whole affair and sending them across, He's preventing them, He's giving them a chance to be able to repent. Why? His intention initially was what with Noah? Look, Noah, you people of Shem, I want you to be the example for the others. You are going to be the one who will bring them back together. But obviously it failed here. So what is he going to do? After this whole failure. After this debacle. He's going to say, alright, I'm going to start with one guy. Abram, I'm going to pick you. And you're going to be the one to lead my people. And who, who is the people of God? It's everybody. It's everybody. So, the chosen people was chosen not just to be chosen, right? And sit pretty and eat candy and marshmallow and lollipop. They were chosen to lead the others back to God. Right? And after that, I get the question, well, 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 okay, you tell me that only the Catholics are going to be saved, but what about others? What about my cousin? What about the people I know? Well, God chose you. He chose you for a reason, to bring them back. To pray for them. To offer sacrifice. So that they could be saved. That's why. Simple as that. See, we have the same kind of tendency. What God chose me here. He didn't choose them here. So it's God's problem. Why did God do that? No, no, no. God chose you just as He chose Abraham. Abraham could have said exactly the same thing. In fact, another one, another famous guy said that thing. Who? Me? Oh no. No, 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 no. I don't know how to talk. I stutter. Pick somebody else. Go find somebody else. Some, someone better than I to do this. His name was Moses. God, after all, it's your problem. I know my problem. Put it on my shoulders. I can't do this. And we all have the same tendency. We all do that. We walk by in our homes. There is a piece of cloth on the floor or a Kleenex or something. What do we do? We just keep on walking. It's not my problem. God didn't put that piece of dirt right here for me to gain glory with it. It's not my problem, God. I have nothing to do. I'm not the one who dropped it here. Why should I pick it? I let my brother or my sister or the donkey or somebody else pick it. I have nothing to do with it. See, the same attitude. We display exactly the same attitude on microscopic level, but it's exactly the same attitude. Right? So that's why they essentially build this tower. And then, the, now the purpose of the genealogy that follows, I'm not going to read it to you, because I have something else that I want to I show you, is now you understand why it comes after. Because now that everybody's fallen, there's no point in going into details of this genealogy of Shem. What we're going to do is focus on the one guy who's going to bring hope, which is Abram. And that genealogy now walks straight through the line, ignoring everything until it gets to Abraham. And you will see that just as there are ten genealogies from Noah to Adam, there are ten genealogies from Abraham to Noah. 
So it's constructed this way to indicate one more time the universality of the call. It's not just for him, it's for the whole world. Okay? So, as I said, I have this paper that will be on the website, and you can, when, when, it's, when it's up there, you can essentially go there and then pick it up. And it covers all the, the names that you will find in this genealogy, and it gives you some background on their, uh, what they would correspond to today in modern, in modern terms, so you know where they are located, and you know who they are. Okay, now what I want to do is focus again on this business of language. The one thing I didn't tell you about now is the language. Why did God confuse their language? And what does the confusion of language mean? And what I'd like to do is go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And then read from the end of this chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 uh, is a chapter in which St. Uh, Paul is speaking of the gift of tongues. Now, the gift of tongues is not um, speaking Spanish or French or any of the other uh, normally spoken languages. It's the ability of somebody to pray in a tongue that is not um, understood by anyone. All right? Unless there's someone who can interpret the tongue. And uh, if you have not gone yet to a charismatic mass... I do recommend you attend one such Mass. The gift of tongue is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. St. Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And he doesn't mean speaking in English or Spanish or English. He means being able to pray in tongues. So it's an absolute gift of the Holy Spirit. But his point now is comparing the gift of tongue versus the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is not the gift to be able to prophesy about who's going to win the loto. Or bingo. It's about... The ability to interpret our times through the wisdom of God. That's the gift. Of, in other words, it's to instruct the faithful and make them understand and be able to read their own times through the lens of Scripture and the Word of God and the church. And he's contrasting the two of those. And then he says this. Towards the end of the chapter, he says this. Verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, be babes in evil, but in thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah. St. Paul is quoting Isaiah as Isaiah is prophesying to Israel, the, the northern kingdom. And Isaiah told them, By men of strange tongues shall the Lord speak to you. And he actually spoke Babel. There is a part in the gospel, in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Isaiah where the Lord is where, where Isaiah is really speaking Jewish Babel, and the translators are at pain to translate it appropriately. They will translate it like um, here a little, there a little, uh, and it's not that. It's just pure child Babel, and the intent was that God is telling them, "I'm going to bring the Assyrians, and when you hear their voices, it will sound like Babel because you don't understand it, and they will speak to you." What does that mean? They are going to raise your villages, destroy the entire northern kingdom, and take you, ship you all in, 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 in exile. Because I'm speaking to you through my prophets, and you're not listening. You don't seem to understand. So I'm going to speak to you in a language that you seem to understand. And notice what he did with the Tower of Babel. God saw what they did, but he did not speak to them verbally, as he did with Adam. Adam, where are you? Or Cain, where's your brother? He didn't do any of this, because now sin has been compounded. What he does instead, he speaks to them in action. 
confusion reigns amongst them. They can't speak. This is God speaking to them. And that is a mainstay of a Christian view of the world. When we see events around us, God is speaking. God is speaking because God is in control. In one word, God dispersed their activities, broke everything they were doing, and stopped them. Cold. And you can do it today. Whichever way you want it. Right? Now, St. Paul says, by men of strange tongue, will I speak to you. So now, St. Paul's reflection on that is that what? Thus, tongues, meaning prayer and tongues, are a sign, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Whereas, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. What does he mean by that? He means that when you have prayers in tongues, it is a sign given to unbelievers. But when you have prophecy, it is for believers. Why? Because God is telling the world what He told Israel. By men of strange tongues shall I speak to you. Meaning, my judgment is coming. But when He teaches the faithful, He's instructing them into salvation. Yeah? Now here's the interesting fact. The gift of tongues was in the Catholic Church in the origin. Until what? 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. After 70 AD it went away. The gift of miracles, of prophecy, remained continuously throughout the history of the church. There isn't one, one decade in the history of the church where you didn't have a saint or a miracle. Not one. But the gift of tongue left. When did it come back? 1962. It was first in the Protestant churches. They're the ones who start speaking in tongues. And then re-entered the church in 1962. The end of the Second Vatican Council. Right when Pope Paul VI was trying to decide on contraception and Catholics decided that they know better. Let's build ourselves a tower. That's when the gift of tongue re-entered the church. As a sign of for unbelievers, not for believers. Alright? So, that text that we just read is, is, is the background for all of this. When God uh, broke that unity by making people hear tongues they couldn't understand, that was a sign of His judgment. Yet at the same time, it was a sign of His election. Because He went down, sort of, five generations later, and picked up one guy that would eventually lead his people and then eventually bring about the Messiah. So, it isn't that God is only judging the world, but God is redeeming the world, and God is giving His church the ability to go out and evangelize. And God is always at work. Always at work. And our... Our role, especially during this time of Lent, is this examination of conscience. Where do I stand before God's covenant? What are my actions like? Am I like St. Joseph? Am I acting like him? Am I imitating him? Or am I these men trying to do wonderful and great things? Whether with my profession, with my education, with my sport, with all these human activities. And then 
doing it for myself and not for God? Those are the questions that should be on our mind. Don't get me wrong, none of that is bad in itself. Building a tower is a great human achievement. But it was done for the wrong purpose. What is the purpose? What is driving me? What is driving me? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Brings me back to my initial question. Will you benefit from what you're doing? Or will someone else benefit? That's what you have to ask yourself. Questions? Yeah. Because they got together to do something which is obviously against God's will. They did not get scattered. They're not following suit with God's plan. They got together to build a tower, to build a name for themselves, for their own glory. Therefore, it could not be that they're doing God's will. Hence, they're doing something against God's will. So now they joined with the people of Shem, joined with the people of Canaan to do something that is against God's will. Hence, they were not trying to bring them back to God. They're effectively, they're the ones who are being pulled away from God. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They went and... The, the implication is they that took they the daughters, though, for themselves. Uh, but they, they they looked upon the daughters. You need to understand the looked upon. Okay. Yeah, that is not uh, that is not um, daughter. You remind me of the glory of God. Look. Right. Okay. All right. So, yes. But, Absolutely. Oh yeah. Okay. They completely understand that because they're living in an area that's completely unclean. Now, how do you keep yourself separate? You can't. Right. right. And so the writings is also to show them that, look, yes, see how these people mingled together and they were all unclean, yet God didn't abandon them. So that's the other subtext that is going on here. God never abandoned them. He kept on pulling one of them out and brought them. It was from the line of Shem, right, Abram. He brought one out and then he revived the faith. And likewise, he will do for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. No, making a name for yourself isn't having a nickname. It means... For instance, saying, I want to be the best football player there is so that I would be the greatest. That's making a name for yourself. Instead of saying, I want to glorify God in playing football. And so that my play, my game, and the pain I'm going to go through will convert others. Completely different attitude. Good question. Yes. You know, it's not so much an activity as it's in a state of mind. And we have to pray for that. It's really a gift of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit um, instills in us the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Right? The book of wisdom. The fear of God. The filial fear. Meaning what? Not the fear of a slave. Oh, I'm going to get punished. Ow, ow. It's the filial fear. I don't want to offend my father. That is a great gift. Once it instills in our hearts... It's on our, our mind. What, is what I'm doing offensive to God? So first I move away from the things that are offensive. And then, hopefully, with fasting and mortification and prayer, I begin to turn to, is what I'm doing pleasing to God? Right? It's a lifelong journey. But in order to begin it, obviously, if, if, if our children could grow in the discipline of doing good, because our children, when they are this age, are like donkeys. They just don't want to do any of that. Right? They're stubborn, they're stiff-necked, and they all want to do what they want to do. And that's it. Right? And you ask them to do something, they do it, and, you know, all right, I'll just do it. Because you asked me for 22 times. Right? But if we maintain that discipline as parents, and we don't let go, hopefully, eventually, the virtue 
of doing good will predispose them to receive that gift from God. All right? That's what's, what, is the, what is really important for us as parents. And we know sometimes we just think, I'm just going to give up. Forget it. I'm going to put them in a box and ship them to China, all of them. Right? Well, that's because we have the tendency, right, to, because of our weaknesses, to despondency. But God says, no, keep at it. Keep at it. And one day I will come and then touch their heart. Right? So it's a lifelong exercise. Yes, unfortunately. I wish there was a magic bullet. But there isn't. Yes. To, uh, for God's glory? Oh, it's very easy. It's very simple. It's very, very simple. How do you know if you meet... How do you know if the, the dish you're cooking is for your children or for you? How would you know that? Suppose you're cooking this dish and it's with the fish and it's sushi and it's exquisite. But your kids don't like sushi. Who is it for? For you. So it's the knowledge of the others, the other that make you, that, that allow you to determine what you want, what, you, what, what you're doing is for you, right? So the more you know the other, the more you know. So the more you know God, the more you know. Now how do you come to know God? Well, first, His commandments. So examination of conscience. Am I following the commandments? Right? The other one is the teachings of the church. Am I following what the church is teaching, asking me to do? The third one is the things that your state of life requires of you. Fidelity, chastity, love, sacrifice. If you're doing all these things, you're doing it for God's glory. Because you and I know you could be doing a bunch of other things that don't require so much pain. Right? So that's how you answer. Yeah. Yes. Correct. That, that, that is absolutely correct. In everything we do, in everything we do, there is a bit of egotism, a bit of pride mingled in it. Now, let's put things into, con- uh, into context. St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that none of us is able to say, one, our Father, worthily. And forget everything else. Just start right there. That's St. Thomas. You, re- you, re- you realize St. Thomas was a mystic. He would spend two hours before the Blessed Sacrament. He would levitate. A whole bunch of stuff happened to him. It wasn't just, you know, this computer, you know, thinking, right? No, he's, he's an amazing mystic. Not one of us can say, one our Father, worthily. So God knows. God knows that our execution is lacking. But what did he say? He looks at the intention. Is your intention to please him? And are you, and when you are, how do you know if your intention is to please him? Very simple. When you find yourself not pleasing him, when somebody says something, you realize, oops, I'm not doing this. Do you apply yourself to change? If the answer is yes, you're pleasing Him. That's the human state of affairs. Right? Until He raises you to such level of holiness, where you're truly into what we call holy indifference. Right? But He has to do this lifting. We can't. We can't. Right? Therefore, you're right. Even in our best intentions, our best actions, there is still all that mingled in. He knows. But it doesn't take away from the fact that He kind of ignores this because of our kind of weaknesses looks at what his son did for us and say, you're loving my son and that's enough for me. Right? Not to say we have to be complacent. It's not easy, but he, it, again, Catholicism, the two together. Right? We're not here to seek perfection on our own. Right? Neither are we to be complacent. So here's two sayings. Both merit reflection. St. Augustine. Pray as if everything depended on God. And work as if everything depended on you. You know this one. Okay. St. Ignatius of Loyola. Pray as if everything depended on you. 
and work as if everything depended on God. And it takes some thinking. But it's the two. Both. Right? So as long as you, you're constantly striving to please Him, you're doing the best you can, you fall, you get up, you continue, right? You do what is in your abilities. And you immediately change when you realize you needed to change. That's what God is asking. Very good. So let's uh, stand and finish with a word of prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.